Okay, that is the sweetest thing I've ever seen. Thank you so much for children. Thank you for that. What a neat tradition you do here. Um, good morning. My name is Dawn Bodie. I'm really excited to be worshiping with you today. Um, during my previous role as the associate pastor at ECC for seven years, I had the honor of meeting Brandon and Stephanie. In fact, I believe that it was uh, Pastor Stacy Littlefield and myself who bought them their first lunch in their hometown here. So I've enjoyed them over the last few years, and uh, I can honestly say what you already know. They are wonderfully gifted, passionate pastors. You're lucky to have them shepherding over you, not to mention with their newest little addition that you get to watch grow up in the pews. And also, I'm happy to be here because in my time as a chaplain at Westminster, I've been blessed to know a few of your attenders whose loved ones I have served at Westminster. So thank you for the invitation. Confession time, though. When Brandon asked me to offer a message for today, I was hesitant. I knew I would be preaching later today at Westminster, and I'm not very good at having my mind on two different messages. So I said to Brandon, well, if the text matches what the Lord gives me for Westminster, I will say yes. And lo and behold, the passage that I chose for Westminster is just a few verses ahead of where you are in your journey through Luke. So I felt it was all a bit providential. But uh, how about we all pray together just in case, okay? (laughs) Heavenly Father, would you grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be holy and completely pleasing to you. May your spirit of revelation take from and add to what I prepared for this congregation so that we all might be transformed into greater Christ-likeness for our most abundant life, the sake of others, and your glory, we pray. Amen. So today marks the fourth Sunday in Lent. Next week, Christians everywhere will be celebrating Palm Sunday, and then Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and then finally, Easter Sunday. And what I enjoyed most about my time at ECC around this time of year was being asked to give the children's message, either on Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday. And there was always one book in particular that I enjoyed reading, and so I thought I would share it with you today. It's called Only God Would Have Planned It That Way. If I would have planned out the Lord's Passion Week The throngs would be gathered and autographs they'd seek. But the ficklish crowds would become a mad fray. You see, only God would have planned it that way. If I would have planned how a conqueror would ride, I'd saddle a stallion with a big, haughty stride. Yet he hopped upon a small colt that spring day. You see, only God would have planned it that way. If I would have planned the last meal that he would eat, the best food and guests would be placed at his feet. Yet Christ donned a towel and a meek servant's tray. You see, only God would have planned it that way. If I would have planned how he would spend his last night, I'd have thrown him a great party to bring him great delight. 
But he wept alone, and in great sorrow he prayed. You see, only God would have planned it that way. If I would have planned how a great king should die, he'd have a grand funeral and thousands would cry. But he hung on a cross on a dark, gray day. You see, only God would have planned it that way. If I would have planned the last statement he'd make, I'd bring in reporters and notes they would take. But it is finished, were the last words he would say. You see, only God would have planned it that way. If I would have planned God's great love plan for me, I would not have sent Christ to die on that tree. But God knew my sin needed infinite pay. You see, only God would have planned it that way. If I would have planned how Messiah would save, he would not spend three days closed up in a grave. But Christ rose from death that victorious day. You see, only God would have planned it that way. I love children's books, especially those that are inspired by God's words, because they distill down for us his truth in profound and memorable ways. And his truth is especially timely and worthy worthy of remembering, because yes, Only God would have planned it this way. A picture of a king who left a throne to come to us, to become like a man, to live with us, to laugh with us, to cry with us, and ultimately save us. And in such a way, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we can be absolutely sure of his radical love and therefore fearless in our own life. For whether it comes with ease or challenge, we know that we don't journey alone or forever. God is with us, and he is leading us to something wonderful. There is nothing like this message among all the other world religions. A message that forever impacted the world then as it should still today. But is it? Is it really? If that's the case, why will so many churches have empty pews just a week or two after we remember this momentous event? I'm going to suggest that it's not so much about the truth or the story. There's nothing wrong with the truth or the story. But rather what we've done with it. You know, we've confined it to buildings and to seminaries and to denominations We've used it to create career paths for pastors and even publishing and music and home decor industries. Or we've wielded it as a weapon to keep some in and others out. In essence, we have resigned the Easter experience to just another nice brunch or ham dinner rather than an encounter with a transforming power of God's radical love and through it the ability to share it well with others. Of course, Jesus knew this would be a temptation for us in his day and even now. There's just something in our human psyche, or rather an enemy working through it, that seeks to hold back, contain, or even disregard what is beyond our understanding intellectually. 
and why, in his infinite grace, he goes to great lengths to warn us against this, as well as offer a remedy for it. And today's text is no different, though I believe with a much more specific word for we church folk that it's timely for us to hear. I'm going to be reading Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17 from the NIV version, but I'm going to be focusing today primarily on the last four versions or verses. To some who were confident of their righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers and even like this tax collector. Well, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked him. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belonged to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. By little ones, we can assume that Luke means infants and young children coming up to or being brought to Jesus for the purpose of receiving a blessing, as was conveyed by the laying on of the hands. And Jesus seemed to welcome it with great delight, even inviting it out by calling the children to him. Or Mark tells us in his gospel, scooping these little ones up in his arms to the absolute frustration of the disciples, who respond by sternly ordering them, according to the NRSV, or rebuking them. Obviously, the disciples thought it was their job to control the circumstances or even Jesus in an effort to maintain order. And you see, the order of the day was this. Children were simply not worthy of such attention. Yes, they were loved by their mommies and daddies in the first century Palestine, but more like possessions and possessions of the father alone who had the authority to do what he pleased with them no matter how heinous. And regardless of age, no child could own property or anything of value until that father passed, passed over, which meant that they were totally insignificant by societal standards and therefore unworthy of attention from other adults, let alone the esteem of Jesus. But of course, this is why Jesus uses this moment and these children as an object lesson for the disciples. You see, their perceived unimportance was completely inconsistent with the message that he had been trying so hard to communicate. For as one commentator stated, precisely when Christ appears surrounded by the little ones and moves in their world, he is the image of the invisible God whose majesty never shines more gloriously than when he condescends to those which are the least and the last. And the disciples of all people should have known this. And that is why Jesus 
rebukes them. Let the children come to me, he said, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Notice Jesus didn't say the children will be in the kingdom of heaven or that the kingdom of heaven belonged only to them, but rather that those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven will be like them, which leads to the next question, in what way? What is the essential characteristic that Jesus is emphasizing here that the disciples were missing? Well, if you've been around children long enough, there's probably a few things that come to mind. But let me just share a little insight that I gained during my time in seminary. I was given the challenge of interviewing 50 children of different ages, backgrounds, and faith or no faith. And not one of those children had trouble conceptualizing a God when I asked them to describe him or draw a picture of him. They accepted that there was a God at face value, though the face depicted in those pictures did vary a bit. I brought just a few for you to see. Peter, you got the first one? This little girl, Naomi, saw God as color. Yellow reflected God's hope and peace and red his power. Another child saw God as a friend to toss a ball with. Yet another one saw God as watching over his world with a smile on his face. Or even in the next picture, a great big hug. Or my personal favorite, this child saw God as creating a church in the sky with a sign overhead that said, everyone is welcome. But to every one of these children, God was different than them, set apart and in control, the source of all good things for those children and the world, which reflects their humility. And I would suggest that the primary attribute of a disciple that Jesus was emphasizing here is precisely that, humility. In fact, he mentioned it in verse 15, right before his encounter with the children. For everyone who humbles himself will be humbled, Jesus said, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Webster Dictionary defines humility as lacking in pride or arrogance which is certainly reflective of the children's pictures of God or they would not have been able to conceive of him in the first place. And it was also reflective of the actions of the children in our text today or they would not have approached Jesus at his invitation. These children, the least of these, those with no social standing and only empty hands to lay before Jesus with trust that he would fill them up. And this is what the disciples once had. It was what inspired them to leave their homes and their possessions and their families and to risk ridicule. They knew that they were in need of something that only God could provide, a radical and lavish love that's found in Jesus that affirmed that they too were worthy of love and purpose for good. But now, just a short time later, They were at risk of forfeiting it all and for reasons that elevated the frustration of Jesus from a little bit to an all-time high. Did you notice he was not that frustrated with the tax collector just a few verses later? 
But he's angry with the disciples. And here's why. The disciples had allowed their proximity to Jesus to deceive them into thinking that they now somehow had some kind of elevated status. And in doing so, they had given ear to the voices of pride or childishness within them. And Jesus was having none of it, especially in his name. Truly, I tell you, he said, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. In other words, grow up. He was saying to the disciples, go back to your childlikeness, that place where you first experienced me. And to understand more fully what is meant by this, I think a visual might be helpful. It's in your bulletin, if you don't mind opening up, or you can look up at the screen. You see, just as there are human physical and psychological stages to growth, there are also human spiritual stages as well. And several different ways to communicate this truth, but I happen to like the one that I've posted in your bulletin that's up on the screen. Let me just walk you through this briefly. First, in stage one, there's awareness. You know that moment when you realize that there is a God and you're not him, but you need him and you want him? This is typically followed by a season of learning. This can be years, decades, right? We learn everything about this God and his purpose and love for us. And then then comes stage three, maybe a little bit of service because that's what we good Christians do, right? And it's all necessary and it's all good. It's just not the whole journey. And here's why. You see, the motivation for the first three stages can actually be a little bit selfish. We can focus on our conversion story and our Bible studies and even our wonderful work, just as the disciples did. And many of our evangelical traditions actually encourage this through their emphasis on learning and serving without equal attention paid to our motivation for it all. But when we remain in those first three stages, what we typically do is relegate God to a mere extra on the stage of life. And we miss out on the deeper transformation that he's calling us to. To break through a wall. To learn to love God, not for our own sake, but for God's sake. And here's the truth. There's no nonstop flight for this journey. Unfortunately, there's a lot of layovers along the way. Um, And it comes generally from suffering. The sufferings or... uh, challenges, crises in life. But when we meet them head on, we're able to find that our truest identity and our deepest freedom actually lies in God's infinite love for us and not in what we do or what we can get other people to think about us. But it requires that we do a deeper work. We need to look harder into our motivation. And part of that means relegating the knowledge that we think we have gained through our proximity to Jesus. Because as the Apostle Paul said, and Jesus certainly affirmed, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Those who think they know something do not know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. 
I just love how theologian Ronald Rollheiser describes the second conversion as it is, second conversion journey. You see, we're all young fools, he writes. And then our eyes are open to a little bit of knowledge, just as Adam and Eve's were, and we become old fools. But the task at hand is to become holy fools. Holy fools are people who have stopped trying to look like something more than they are. They know in their heart and they're willing to admit who they are in the face of God. Again, that their deepest identity and their freedom comes from God's radical love alone. I was recently asked if we can avoid the second conversion if we can, in essence, avoid suffering or complexities in life? And here's my answer, no. And I think that's God's mercy in grace. You see, he's going to complete the work he began in us. For our own sake, yes. For the sake of others, certainly. And for his glory. And incidentally, this is why I love my new work so much, because I see evidence of this daily as a chaplain at Westminster. I have the blessing of being inspired by people who are moving through the wall or who have already moved through the wall. They have faced the complexities and challenges in life with a simplicity and trust and humility that leaves me speechless. They don't argue much about theology. They just want to experience an increasing measure through God, his love, and then to love well in return for as long as they can. It's that simple. And it's that complex, as the disciples also learned. Let me just share one example. I have a woman who's 100 years old. She's the daughter of a pastor. She's been in church her whole life. And recently, she asked if I would come meet with her once a week to read scripture. Or rather, she reads it to me from the King James Version. She has never in all her life sat and read scripture she's heard a verse or two preached to her but she's never read it like she would read a good book and i'm telling you what i see in her face at the end of that hour i spend with her is unbelievable she is radiant she glows and her light can't help but to just encourage me along my journey journey I'm not suggesting that the residents of Westminster don't struggle. Just because you're a hundred doesn't mean you aren't still in a battle. We do have an enemy that wants to draw us back to the facade, the facade of self-sufficiency and then cause us to measure ourselves against it. But many of them do choose well, and they choose childlikeness in all its power, simple, trusting, and especially humble. Of course, there is an alternative. We can always become a bitter fool instead. But that's not nearly as beautiful or victorious. And why I'm here today, I don't want that for myself. And I don't want that for any of you. Certainly not believers in God's church. And more importantly, Jesus didn't want it for us either. He's calling us to experience so much more than just being around him and doing for him. And that will only happen when we grow young. When we grow young. When we keep coming to Jesus as children. Knowing that we have nothing to offer him. 
but trust that he loves us and that he will fill our hands abundantly for our best life, the sake of others and God's glory. For as Socrates once said, an honest man is always a child. And I would assert, and only God could have planned it that way. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your mighty word, how deeply profound it is. How when we really give ears to listen to it and let it seep from our head down into our heart, it will transform us every time. We thank you for your love represented behind it. How it can help us, Lord, to love others, to be a part of your transforming work in this world. And so, Lord, I ask you, as one of your believers in the company of other believers, that you would help us as Holy Week approaches to hear the story of Easter, to hear the story of that radical love with freshness, like a child, so that we might again return back to that first moment of awareness in you, a second conversion, a second naivete, and then move forward in our life to love you not for our own sake, but for your sake, for you alone are worthy. And it's in the name of your precious Son who was and is and who will forever be, we pray. And all God's children said, Amen.